Praise sounds like great are you, Lord, uh, but pride sounds like great am I. Uh, last week we looked at uh, Daniel chapter 4 and uh, the pride of Nebuchadnezzar and God's grace in bringing him uh, to repentance. And uh, this morning, I don't mean to, to beat a dead horse, but we're going to continue talking about pride, um, not because I want to, but because that's what the Bible leads us uh, to do this morning. And, uh, and I feel like uh, as we look at Daniel 5, God has something that he wants uh, to teach us and to press home in our lives. And uh, in fact, um, this lesson of pride has been, um, or this work, uh, working on uh, pride has been something that I've seen in my life recently. Uh, we all know pride's a terrible thing, um, especially when we see it in ourselves. So that's part of the problem is we don't see it in ourselves. So, but yesterday I was reminded of this uh, personally. Um, my uh, daughter and I, uh, we, uh, our whole family was at the at the park. Uh, you know, it was 40 degrees and sunny yesterday, so it was basically early spring in Michigan. Um, so we were we were all outside, still bundled up with gloves on, but uh, just happy that the sun was out and. Uh, we were at the swing uh, area, and we were on the swing, and my daughter says, uh, Dad, you see that tree over there? How fast do you think you can run there? Um, and so, you know, uh, this is a season of life where she's only six right now, so I've only got a few, year, few more years where I'm the coolest, strongest, fastest uh, person, you know, in her life. And so I wanted to take this opportunity to demonstrate to her my superior skills uh, and uh, get to the tree and back, all right? So... I'm swinging, uh, and uh, I decide that I'm going to jump out of the swing, all right? Uh, first mistake. Um, mind you, I'm only in my early 30s, but nonetheless, uh, it hit me very hard yesterday. Uh, I decided I would jump out of the swing, um, and, um, and, and so I did that, but the uh, mulch was kind of loose. I don't know if they've replaced it recently, you know, or maybe it's a different type of mulch. Uh, maybe it was a defect of my shoe, but I slipped uh, and did a little tumble, right? You know, so, uh, so far so good. I didn't break my collarbone or anything like that, you know, so I tumble and rather than accepting my human limitations that have been revealed to me in this moment, I decide that I'm going to keep going, right? No, no sense in turning back. So I run to the tree, but the problem is uh, while the ground is, you know, clear from snow and, and beautiful, it's wet from all the snow. So as I get to the tree, the base of the tree is, is kind of muddy. And so I slip in the mud. Um, and now I've got mud all over my jacket, all over my pants, all over my gloves. Um, but not to be deterred, I get up and I run back. And my daughter still thinks that I did it fast, right? So this probably took like 20 minutes, it seems like to me, but uh, she still thinks I'm fast. And and so, uh, you know, pride definitely hurt a little bit. Uh, my wife was laughing at me as she is now. And, uh, and so, but uh, still, for the most part, my daughter thinks I'm fast, strong, and cool. Uh, well, as we are walking home, she challenges me once more. She says, Dad, I bet you're not as fast as me. Uh, and, and so there's a light pole ahead. And so I decide, let's race, right? You know, uh, what 32-year-old doesn't like to race a six-year-old, you know, for their own uh, self-benefit. Um, and so, uh, you know, granted, I gave her a head start. You know, there's a 26-year difference between us. So I, I gave her a head start, and, uh, and then I turned the burners on, right? Like, I mean, I went strong. Uh, and everything was going great. I was going to beat her. It was going to be glorious. Uh, she was going to know that uh, I am fast, strong, and cool. But she veered, she veered into my lane. See, pride is putting blame on other people. So she veered into my lane, and uh, though I tried to avoid her, I knocked my six-year-old daughter down. <laughs> and 
she not only ripped her favorite leggings, uh, but <laughs> scraped her knee and and just crocodile tears, you know, fell apart. Um, and so <laughs> I had to carry her home. Uh, we had to put the Band-Aid on the very small scrape, mind you. Um, and uh, and I did point out still that I beat her technically. Um, <laughs> however, my pride was wounded. Um, but in all seriousness, pride is, is much more serious than, um, than just our wounded pride and scraped knees. Pride, uh, if we understand it according to God's word, uh, is far more dangerous. It's a far greater problem. It gets to the very core of our problem as humanity, and it gets to the very core uh, and, and reveals to us God's character as he opposes pride and gives grace to the humble. Um, we're going to be in Daniel 5. We, we have uh, some Bibles that are uh, on the seats next to you. If you wanted to use that Bible, I, I believe it's on page 742 that will be this morning. Uh, but in Daniel 5, uh, we're going to see the story of a, of a new king in Babylon whose pride is confronted by God. But before we dive into Daniel 5, I want to step back and, and remind you of, of what we've been uh, saying about Daniel chapters 1 through 6. The, the message that rings clear across Daniel 1 through 6 is that God is in control. That's the, the message that uh, is paramount and, uh, and clear throughout these chapters. God is sovereign over all. And here's the part that we need to remember, even over our lives. He is in control, sovereign over all, even your life. And it's important to remember why the book of Daniel is written. Like we, we read through the book of Daniel and we're getting these episodes of Daniel's life uh, and, and how God used him as well as uh, his friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But uh, the book of Daniel is written after all these things occurred to, to exiled Israel to encourage them, to remind them that God is in control. The, the still languishing in exile Israel, now under the Persians by the time this is written, are, are, are exhorted to trust in God and to persevere in faithful obedience, even though they find themselves in exile. You could say it's written to encourage God's people to be faithful in exile. That's, that's been our theme. What does it look like for us to be faithful in exile? And, and chapters 4 and 5 kind of fit together with this theme of pride that we see and God's sovereignty to raise up and bring down kings and kingdoms. In fact, uh, let me remind you of how Daniel chapter 4 ends in verse 37. It says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. That's a confession of a man who was humbled and who turned his heart towards God. You see, the difference between chapter 4 and chapter 5 is actually the difference between a heart that's submissive to God and a heart that pridefully resists God. It's really the dividing line of humanity, the difference between chapter 4 and chapter 5. And what is that difference? The difference is that Nebuchadnezzar, when confronted with his pride, repents and confesses and says that God alone is the just judge. God alone is the rightful judge over me. However, Belshazzar, the king that we'll see in chapter 5, when he's confronted with his pride, sees no need to repent and instead says, who's to judge? Which do you say in your heart? God is the rightful judge or who's to judge? 
That's the, that's the message. That's the anthem of a prideful heart. Who's to judge? Especially God. Who's God to judge me and who are you to judge me? And no doubt God's word has a lot to say about not being judgmental, but it has just as much to say about God alone being the rightful judge over us. So this morning as we look at Daniel 5, we see this indifference towards pride in the king Belshazzar. And it it goes to the heart of the danger of pride, and it points us to the character of God. So in in Daniel chapter 5, we see about 20 years or so have passed between chapter 4 and chapter 5. There's a a large gap of time. King Nebuchadnezzar that we've been looking at all throughout the first four chapters of Daniel has been dead for about 25 years. Um, He had ruled for over 40 years, and... uh, and had established a great kingdom. We know how proud he was of his kingdom. But in less than 25 years, the kingdom he built, no doubt by and under the hand of God, had been all but lost. Four, four or so kings followed Nebuchadnezzar, and the, the kingdom of Babylon was far weaker and less significant than it had been under King Nebuchadnezzar. And a new king came to power named Nabonidus, um, and uh, this king comes to power, but is largely an absent king and, in fact, has gone away. Uh, and, and Belshazzar is uh, the de facto king, his son, that's ruling in his place. In fact, uh, until uh, right around a little over 100 years ago now, I guess, um, uh, we didn't have any information about Belshazzar outside of the Bible. Uh, however, uh, somebody with the British Museum was doing an excavation of one of the ziggurats in Babylon, near Babylon, and they found this inscription uh, that speaks of Nabonidus' son, Belshazzar, who was put in, put in place to rule while the king was away. And so um, <clears throat> here we have this king who is, is representing his father ruling over the kingdom, and we, we begin to see things unravel. The king comes undone and Babylon is going to come to an end. I, I want us to see the danger of pride uh, as we look at Daniel 5. Daniel 5 um, shows us, first of all, that pride blinds us to our true condition. Pride blinds us to our true condition. Let's, let's read Daniel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God at Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone." This scene in verses 1 through 4 is a, is a party uh, that the king throws. The king is young, is wealthy, and is confident. You, you don't lack confidence if you gather a thousand of the people of your kingdom and throw a party. The king does something that many kings wouldn't do. He drank wine before the people. It was the, the ultimate sign to, uh, that the party had begun. If the king is drinking before the people, then the night would be a wild night. We see that all of this wealth and all of this confidence reveals what he thinks of himself, but all, all along we see the true condition of his heart that he doesn't see himself. We, we see his, uh, his disobedience against God, though he surely doesn't know it. 
We see his drunkenness. We see his sexual immorality as he not only had many wives and concubines, but we also see the emphasis is put upon his profaning of God's name. Did you notice the, the vessels that it mentions that were brought from the temple in Jerusalem? It's as if the king says, uh, you know, let me, let me just remind you of how great we are and how we have conquered other nations. Uh, yeah, that, that temple in Jerusalem that my great-great-grandfather ransacked and we took all the gold and we took all the silver. Why don't you bring me those cups and we'll drink from those cups. And the, the cups that, that were used to worship the God of Israel, he lifts up and he says, praise the gods of gold and silver and wood and stone. Profanes the name of God, taking the very uh, vessels that were used in the house of God and using them to mock and profane God's name. And then he falsely worships the gods of Babylon. Here's, here's someone who's competent in themselves, but competent in their sin. You know, competence isn't wrong. I, I hope that you can have self-confidence. That's not what today's message is about. But competence in your sin puts you on terribly shaky ground. God said through the prophet Isaiah many years before this in Isaiah 47 verses 10 through 11. Listen to what Isaiah said to Babylon. This was God's message to Babylon through Isaiah. Independent of what we see here in Daniel or, or what we would see in Jeremiah. Listen to what God said. He said, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. You said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, and which you will not know how to charm your way, charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. And that indeed is what would happen at the end of Daniel chapter 5, as the party goes on. Unbeknownst to King Belshazzar, the Medo-Persians come underneath the walls of Babylon and, king, and kill King Belshazzar and overtake the kingdom of Babylon. This very night, his life will come to an end and his kingdom will be taken from him. What a terrible place to stand when you feel pretty good about yourself, when you feel pretty comfortable and without need for God. Like Belshazzar, you're in a dangerous place because pride blinds you to your true condition. I couldn't help, as I read this, be reminded of uh, there's a story that Jesus tells uh, about a, uh, a parable, about a rich fool. He, he uses it to show the, the foolishness for living for the things of this life, for, for living for wealth or, or living for pleasure. In particular, he's talking about wealth, and he tells a story. And he says there was a rich man who had a bountiful harvest, uh, brought in a lot of crops. And he had a problem. He had so much uh, that came in that his storehouses wouldn't fit uh, all of the grain and all of the harvest. So rather than selling or giving it away or coming up with some plan, he decides to tear down his old storehouses and build bigger ones. But the point really isn't about what he does as much with the stuff, but his heart. Jesus says that this rich fool said to himself, my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And pride, the rich fool, failed to see his true condition. He thought he had all the time in the world. 
He thought he had all the wealth and resources in the world. He thought he had everything that he needed. But Jesus goes on in verse 20 and says, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the thing you have prepared, whose will they be? Whose will they be? To, to plan only for, for this life, to, to, to think that what you're doing now, you have no need for God, that you're at the center of the universe, that, that you're in control of your life, blinded to your true condition. And God says, this very night, you'll have to give an account. And it, it raises the uncomfortable question for all of us. I, I don't think any of us like to think about judgment. But the Bible won't let us escape it. The Bible says that we will all stand before God. We will all give an account to God. So it begs us to ask ourselves, do we realize our true condition apart from the grace and mercy of God? Have you ever thought about your condition before God? Have you thought about your condition before God if you didn't have the grace and mercy of God? Like King Belshazzar, we would be blinded to our true condition and in danger of God's judgment. Belshazzar clearly didn't see his condition, and, <clears throat> and the, re- the reality is we often don't see the true condition of our heart unless God does something to get our attention. I know that was the truth for me. I didn't see my real need until God got my attention, brought somebody into my life, put together circumstances that led me to thinking about him. One week I wasn't thinking about Jesus, and then the next I was thinking about the eternal state of my soul apart from his grace. God can get our attention, and that's exactly what he does to this king. Belshazzar in verse 5 says, Immediately upon doing this, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And it says the king panics and cries out for his spiritual advisors to come and to tell him what this means. And it says all the king's wise men in verse verse 8, they came in, but they could not read the writing or make known the king's interpretation. This is a theme continually. And the king again in verse 9 is greatly alarmed. His color has changed. And his lords were perplexed. The king is undone. It says that his knees knocked together, but literally it says the joints of his loins were loosened. I'll let you uh, make a decision on what you think that means, but I don't think it was a pretty sight for the king. He was undone. He looked to his religious leaders of the day. They looked to the stars to figure out what what it had had to say and what it meant, but they came back with nothing. The king offered them a purple robe, a gold chain, the third most powerful position in the kingdom, but they came back with nothing. You would think I would come up with something. If, I mean, if a purple robe and a gold chain were offered to me plus third in the kingdom, I'm coming up with some answer for the king. But they got nothing. They have no answer for the king. The gods that they praised, the gods of gold and silver and wood and, um, and iron and bronze and stone, they, they come back with no answer, silent. And the reality is sometimes even when we're confronted with the true condition of our heart, we turn to anywhere but God for help. 
but God doesn't leave us there. Once again, God sends Daniel. In verses 8 through 12, we see that King Belshazzar didn't really even know about Daniel. It had been so long that the queen, most likely his mother, comes in. She had heard about what had happened, the commotion that was taking place in the, in the, in the room. And she comes in and says, there's one who has the spirit of the gods. His name is Daniel. He can help you. And Daniel comes once more. Now, by this time, is an old man, well into his 80s, stood faithfully speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar when he was 15 and now stands before a shell of a king in Belshazzar in his 80s speaking faithfully for God. Here's the truth when we think about this reality of our true condition. We either will be undone before God today in repentance or we'll be undone before God on the last day in judgment. Pride blinds us to our true condition, but God graciously tells us Come undone before me in repentance and receive my grace and mercy. Or stand before me in judgment. Brings us to the second point that we begin to see unfolding in verses 13 through 23. That not only pride blinds us to our true condition, but it hardens us against God. In verse 13 it says that Daniel was brought in before the king. And, and you, can, you can see the condition of the king's heart. He, he kind of mocks Daniel. He's like, oh yeah, you're one of the... One of the exiles that we brought from Judah, my, my, my father, King Nebuchadnezzar, he, he brought you. He defeated your people and brought you here. I hear maybe you have something that, you, could ha- that you, you have the spirit of the gods and you might be able to help me. None of my wise men or enchanters, verse 15, have been brought in before me. They couldn't help me. But if you could read this, I'll, I'll give you that purple robe and that gold chain and the third position of power. And Daniel says you can keep your rewards to yourself or give them to another, but I can tell you what this means. And Daniel begins to recount the story of Nebuchadnezzar, of how God humbled Nebuchadnezzar in his pride and, and how ultimately in, in verse, uh, verse 21, it says that God humbled Nebuchadnezzar until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdoms of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And then he brings home the point And here's the point, you know, I mentioned earlier all the the drunkenness and most likely the sexual immorality that marked Belshazzar's life and and all all the different ways in which he had sinned against God. The thing that's emphasized in verse 22 is this, look at verse 22, it says, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all this, you knew about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, you lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. In the second half of verse 23, he says, You've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. God strikes to the very heart of sin. Pride at the very heart of sin that we dishonor God. And it's because we dishonor God and we don't give him the honor that he's due that we, we so often go astray. And, and we, we see our lives marked by disobedience to God. And, and sometimes as, as believers, we, we get tripped up on trying to say, oh, that's, that's sin and this is sin and that's sin and this is sin and that's sin. And, it, and it's important to be consistent and faithful calling sin what is sin. But at the heart of all of the expressions of our sin is the belief that we 
are in charge of our own lives. It's the belief that we don't need God, that we dishonor God. That that should grieve our hearts. Does it grieve your hearts when you see when you see the, the pride and rebellion in your own heart? Does it grieve your heart when you look around you and you see God unhonored, unadorned? When you see God's name profaned? Uh, pride blinds us to the true condition of our heart, but it hardens us against God. Belshazzar lifted himself up against God. And we too, whether whether defiantly in our hearts intending to do so or functionally in our indifference and our apathy, we, we say to God, who's to judge? Who are you to judge me? I choose my own way. I call my own shots. But the truth is our very existence is in the hand of God. Did you catch what, that, what he said there in 2023? 20, in whose hand is your breath? Your very life is dependent on God. Pride tries to take credit for what God does in us and through us. All we have is a gift, but pride pushes back against that gift and, and calls it our own. We, we can't even see ourselves rightly and see God rightly. We're hardened against God, and God, if he doesn't intervene, we persist in pride. But by God's grace, he intervenes. He intervened once more through Daniel. The, the handwriting on the wall was the message that said, your pride is dangerous. Your pride will lead to judgment. Perhaps God's intervening for you. Maybe, maybe you've yet to put your trust in him. He's intervening, calling you calling you to himself, saying, turn away from pride, turn away from doing it your own way and come to me. Don't say who's to judge. Say, God, you're the rightful judge. Come. And believer, we're not exempt. Pride is, is persistently stubborn in our lives. You know, I think that it's pride that's the source of most of our conflicts with people. It's pride that's the source of our, of our refusal to, to acknowledge when we know we're in sin and to turn away from it. It's pride that leads us to, to cover it up, to it's no big deal, to excuse it away. It's pride to think that we don't need God. We don't need his wisdom. We, we've got this on our own. It, it manifests itself in a, in a number of ways. Don't think if you, you know, if you haven't been throwing any parties lately with uh, lots of drunkenness and sexual immorality that you're not guilty of pride like Belshazzar, right? You can be in your, in your house to yourself full of pride. Pride dwells in our hearts and God intervenes calling us to turn away from our pride and to turn to him. And if that's you today, I want to point you to God's character. The end of this passage points us to God's character. Pride blinds us to our true condition and hardens our hearts against God. But, but ultimately, it's, it's when we see God's character that it melts away our prideful hearts, and brings us to humble repentance. We see in verses 24 through 28, God uh, speaks through Daniel and shows us that God alone is judge. We saw it in chapter 4, and we, we see it again here. Look in verse 24. It says, Then from his presence the hand was sent, and the writing was inscribed. This is what it means, Daniel says. This is the writing. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. 
Those were the words written upon the wall. And this is the interpretation. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. God numbers our days. He divides kingdoms, raises up kings, and brings down kingdoms. He's sovereign. God is the one who holds the scales and weighs us in the balances. He is judge. God is the sovereign judge. And here's the mistake we make. Here's the mistake that we make in our culture. Here's the mistake that we perhaps are all tempted to make in our heart. We think that that maybe on the scale it's our good deeds and our bad deeds. And we hope that our good deeds will outweigh our bad deeds and God one day will accept us. Surely we're not that bad. But here's the problem. It's not the good deeds on one side of the scale and the bad deeds on the other side of the scale. It's us on one side of the scale and God on the other. How do you weigh? How do you measure? If you're in the scale and God is weighing you, are you like Belshazzar, found wanting? In pride, we with Belshazzar can be tempted to say, who's to judge? But God graciously and unequivocally answers us. And he says, I am. I'm the judge. Can I tell you some good news? The same God who's the rightful judge is also a gracious savior. The same God who's the rightful judge is a gracious savior. We see this most fully in Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verses 47 through 48, he said, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Our judgment will come if we reject Jesus' words, his invitation to him. But he says to us, I've come not to judge. I came to save. And the one who is the rightful judge took upon himself our judgment. He came not to judge, but to bear judgment on our behalf. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verses 24 through 25. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He himself bore our judgment and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. I say, if you don't know that for yourself, I want you to know that today. But believer, I want to remind you that this is your true status, your true condition. Oh, it, it, it stings when God hits us with the truth of our sin and our pride. But God wounds us with the reality of our pride and warns us of the danger of our pride so that we will see his grace. His grace that's sufficient that James would say, while, while God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. See, on the other side of laying down our pride is the full and sufficient grace of God. If you've yet to trust in him today, your pride doesn't have to keep you from him if you're willing to turn away from it and receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ, who bore the judgment of your sin upon himself on the cross. 
and defeated sin and death in his resurrection. The Bible says anyone who would call on his name, who would confess their sin, trust in him, submit their life to him would be saved and not put to shame. And believers, I want us to know that this is the song that we sing. Oh, we were blinded by our pride and heart against God. But he softened our hearts. He showed us our sin. He intervened and brought us his grace. This is the message of the gospel. God is the rightful judge, but he is a gracious savior. And finally, as Daniel closes this chapter, we see that God not only is the rightful judge, but he upholds his people. Verse 29 says that Belshazzar gave the command after Daniel interpreted the the situation. And he was clothed with purple and a chain of gold, and he put around his neck, and he made a proclamation, and he put him as the third ruler in the kingdom. And then it says in verse 30 that that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Remember what I said Daniel was written for, who it was written to? Daniel's written to exiled Israel to remind them that God is in control. Just think about it. They're in exile, battered and bruised, weak and weary. Distraught and discouraged. And God says, don't forget this. I'm sovereign over all. Even your life. How, how do we see that God upholds his people? Well, Babylon came and fell. Nebuchadnezzar rose up and was put down. Belshazzar lifted himself up and was brought down. And Daniel remained. Daniel was brought as a teenager from Jerusalem to Babylon. And now in his 80s, as the kingdom of Babylon crumbles and the, the Persian Empire rises to power, there's Daniel. If you peek ahead to chapter 6, God gives favor to Daniel and puts him in a position of power even within the Persian Empire. The Babylonians have come and gone. The Persians are now in power. And there is Daniel. Here's the truth. Our hope to be faithful in exile. If, we, if we're going to be faithful in exile, our hope is this, that God will never let us go, that he upholds his people. Listen, I want you to know that God honors faithfulness like Daniel. I want us to be a people who walk with integrity and who speak for God even at great cost to ourselves. I want us to uh, know that God rewards obedience and he commends perseverance. I, I want our lives to be marked by the integrity and the faithfulness of Daniel. But Daniel won't uphold you in exile. Daniel's God will uphold you in exile. It's Daniel's God, our God, who's sovereign over us, who upholds us, who will never let us go. No, not ever will he let us go. That's the God we trust. That's our hope in exile. So I, I, I just, as I look at my own life and I examine my own heart and my own pursuit of Christ, the process of Christian growth can be painfully gradual. 
You, you, want, you want to dig into the Word every day and, and grow and see more of Christ and for Him to transform you. You, you want relationships to be restored. You, you want God to, to use you as His witness. You, you want to see God help you put away sin and for you to grow and becoming more like Christ. And one week goes by and you've inched forward a little bit. It's hard. And sometimes you feel defeated. Sometimes maybe life circumstances are hard. Your Monday starts with a car rolling into your car. That happened to me this Monday. And then you got to go through the insurance thing and do the whole deal. Pressures from family or friends to do this or that. Discouragement by what's going on around us. We can't even agree on anything. There's all these things that press in. And it's so easy to be discouraged. I think that, that might be the natural tendency of us in exile. It's just to be discouraged and, and, and doubt that God's at work and doubt that he's with us. And I just, I look at Daniel and I see 70 years of ups and downs. Who, what happened the 20 years between Daniel 4 and 5? Who knows, right? Nothing exciting apparently. But there he was, still called upon and ready to go. But the point isn't that Daniel is some paragon, you know, of virtue, though no doubt he was a noble and righteous man. But it's that God upheld him. God upholds his people. I, I couldn't help but just as, as God uh, spoke of the, uh, the gods of bronze and iron and wood and stone in, in verse, verse 23, he said, they don't see, hear, or know. But do you know what your God does? Your God sees. Sees you. He hears. His ears are not turned off to his people when they come to him in humility. And he knows. And what a privilege that not only God knows, but to be known by him. That's the truth of the character of God. If we're going to be faithful in exile, it will be God who upholds us. Let's pray.